Welcome to the podcast, Byzantium and Friends. I'm Anthony Caldellis, your host. One of the more interesting and promising developments in the field of Byzantine studies during the past generation has been the emergence of first-rate Byzantine scholarship in Turkey. If you're active in Byzantine research, you already know this, but it sometimes takes longer for such developments to become known to more general audiences. And in the meantime, Byzantine studies in Turkey has entered its second generation, a new phase that I'm calling 2.0, with younger scholars pursuing a wider set of interests. There are many reasons why I find this development fascinating. I'll mention a few of them here. First, the countries in which Byzantine scholarship has traditionally flourished are currently drastically reducing their investment in historical and humanistic research, usually through the false pretexts of austerity. So it is entirely a good thing for our field to have a new major player, bringing a number of new universities and research centers into the conversation, along with a new set of perspectives. Second, the origins and basis of Byzantine studies in Turkey are configured quite differently uh, from those in Western Europe and the United States. In the West, Byzantine studies emerged primarily through extensions of classical philology, that is, editing of texts and so forth, um, an interest in Christian theology, especially the early period of Byzantine history when Christian theology uh, took its uh, final forms, and also an interest in Christian kingship uh, or imperial ideology. And for those reasons, the field of Byzantine studies in Western Europe and the United States tended to focus more on early Byzantine history uh, which recently renamed Late Antiquity. Um, in Turkey, by contrast, the historical focus um, has been largely on later Byzantine history, uh, the part where it intersects with uh, Seljuk and Ottoman history, uh, but also far less so stemming from philology and theology. Um, these are sort of underdeveloped fields in Turkey uh, in contrast to um, fields such as archaeology, urban topography, studies of trade, landscape, and in the monuments, uh, the Byzantine monuments that of which Turkey is so full. And so the field is configured in somewhat different ways, um, and you see that Turkish presence being um, asserted more powerfully with greater influence um, in, in those fields. A third is one of the main reasons why I wanted to do this episode. Um, and specifically, it's to counter the impression that Western scholars, I mean Western, Northwestern Europe and the United States, to counter the impression that they are in some sense universal scholars, that is where all of knowledge is their proper domain um, in a rather imperial sense. Uh, whereas scholar, scholars from other countries, uh, especially along the, the periphery uh, of Europe, especially Southeastern Europe and Turkey and elsewhere, that they are working through their local concerns and ideologies when they're trying to engage with certain historical questions. I've actually seen, re read these attitudes expressed, um, you know, even about Greeks uh, working on Byzantine history and so on. In other words, if you're a scholar in England or the United States, there's no question as to why you might be interested in any part of the world of knowledge. But the perspectives of scholars from what I just call the periphery, or, they're often framed as resulting from local ideological concerns. And ironically, this imperial perspective is projected onto others both when they are working on the history of their own country or culture, uh, for clearly they're not impartial about it, or when they're not, in which case Western scholars are puzzled, like, why aren't you working on your own tradition? Uh, so if, if you want to think about this in a more concrete sense, think about how nobody questions why an American might be studying China, Byzantium, or the Aztecs. But if a Muslim scholar was to work on, say, medieval England or the New Testament, that would raise all kinds of questions, uh, or at least eyebrows among some in the West. My guest today is Siren Chalik, a postdoctoral research fellow 
at the Center for Middle Eastern Studies at Harvard University. Um, she has just uh, submitted a, a long study of uh, Manuel II Palaiologos uh, to be published um, soon, and I hope to have a discussion with her about that uh, when the book appears. But in the meantime, I thought it would be fascinating uh, to get her perspective on the new generation, the 2.0 generation of Turkish scholars who are working on Byzantium, um, I have met uh, a great number of young Byzantinists from Turkey in recent years, and my impression is, of course, that they are interested and motivated on, in studying Byzantium for exactly the same kinds of reasons that we all are, that is, intellectual curiosity about important cultures and events that happened in the past. Um, and I thought that her perspective would be worth hearing and, um, and, and projecting to um, all the listeners of this podcast. Uh, so here then is my conversation with Siren Chalik. Hello, Siren, and welcome to the podcast. Hi, hello. So I understand that you have just finished your, your new biography of Manuel II, Palologos, and have sent it into the press. So congratulations for that. Thank you. So let's just uh, just start about at the beginning and give our listeners a sense of how uh, about the trajectory that led you to write well this new biography and you're working on a range of other interesting topics in Byzantine culture and history. Um, so why don't you just tell us a little bit, you know, what experiences led you to become a Byzantinist and uh, and the trajectory of your sort of intellectual think your thinking and your uh, academic career. Well, I mean, I got interested in history and archaeology at a relatively young age, especially after I started primary school. But I didn't know much about Byzantium back then. I was chiefly more interested in ancient Anatolian civilization, especially the Hittites, because I was fascinated with cuneiform writing, you know, the grammars of these Anatolian civilizations. And as side interest, I also read things about medieval Europe, Renaissance Europe, but the only book I I had about Byzantium was a very thin one, and I don't remember being particularly intrigued by it, only by Empress Theodora's clothing. Uh, but, you know, as time progressed, I became a high school student and adults around me told me that uh, when I got to the university, I shouldn't immediately go for a very specialized field because they told me you're a young person. What you want now is not going to be the same a few years later. You will get bored. Uh, so I opted to study social and political sciences, which is a fairly uh, wide-ranging, you know, department. And uh, we had a core curriculum which necessitated us to study politics, a bit of sociology, philosophy, quantitative methods. And as in the American system, we were free to supplement these with electives. And I took my electives mostly in history and art history. And when I was a sophomore, I realized that I was no longer that interested in Anatolian civilizations or in medieval Europe. I noticed that this wasn't going to keep me satisfied for the life. And as I was searching for alternatives, uh, I uh, heard a lecture on Hagia Sophia by an art history professor because I was taking a general course on history of art and one week was on Hagia Sophia. And I was very intrigued by it, and with the mosaics and everything else. So I went to my university's library, picked up uh, random books on Byzantium, and started reading. And the first book I actually read was Kazdan's People and Power in Byzantium. Uh, I know that now some people criticize this approach, but for the time I found it so fascinating. I was so intrigued. And I went to the library, I picked up more books, I went back, I read more and more, and I became more and more fascinated by it. And I would say after, let's say, reading intensely for about three months, I was really hooked on Byzantium. And I decided I wanted to become a Byzantinist uh, because uh, it was so different uh, from all the other things I had seen until now. It was so complex. Uh, it stretched from 4th to 15th century, so you had plenty of things to do. At one hand, you had the late antiquity. On the other hand, you had the dawn of the Renaissance. So it was chronologically very inviting. It was Greek. It was Orthodox. It was Roman. It also had classical heritage. 
heritage. So it was all this amalgamation of different identities, different layers of culture, and I found it fascinating. And as far as languages go, I noticed that if I uh, became a Byzantinist, I would have to learn many classical and medieval languages, which was very welcome, especially Greek. So I felt that for some reason, this would be a very good opportunity for my future, and it would actually make me very happy as a scholar. Uh, but my university didn't have a Byzantinist. Our professors mostly focused on Ottoman history, so I couldn't take classes. So I was mostly studying on my own, reading whatever stuff I could find. And uh, that summer I did take one Byzantine course in a, a summer school organized by Harvard. But that was it. Apart from that, I didn't have any formal training in Byzantine or late antique studies. And of course, the same goes for Greek. Uh, as soon as I decided to become a Byzantinist, I knew that nobody was going to admit me into their programs without knowing Greek. And since there were no classes, I had to learn it on my own. So I self-taught Greek and I uh, took private classes in Latin. So I did my best to prepare myself. And simultaneously, I started corresponding with my late supervisor, Ruth Macrides. I had read her work and I found her very inspiring, especially on her works on law and literature. And I asked her if I were to be accepted, would you like to work with me as a graduate student? And she kindly accepted. And as soon as I finished my undergrad studies, I went to Birmingham for an MA to study with Ruth Macrides. And the year after that, I directly continued with a PhD. And I started working on Manuel because I had already translated him as an undergrad. I worked on one of his letters and the Ecrasis on the Tapestry of Lou, which right. gave me a very, very, very hard time, I have yes. to say. Yes. But I found this fascinating. And when I arrived to Birmingham, finally I could access John Barker's wonderful book and read it because my library back home didn't have it. But I noticed that nobody was really working on Manuel as an author. So it was largely overshadowed by his imperial identity and politics. Uh, so for my MI dissertation, I produced a study of his letters like network, uh, style, uh, conceptions, the information he gives us. And after that, it was decided that I should move on to his whole picture as an author, working on the total corpus. So I decided to write a new biography of him. And this is what I did for my PhD. Yes. So Ruth McCready is a wonderful person, and I'm very happy to hear that she had such a positive impact. Yeah. Um, on your lifetime is a great loss for our field um, when she passed away last year I believe let me go back to something you said so you said you studied ancient Anatolian civilizations and the Hittites and so on so had you actually studied the languages like Luvian and Hittite and so forth no, I mean, I was a child at the time, but I did have a few studies uh, given very generously uh, to me by my parents about these languages. Right. So I knew a few words, how the languages were working as a structure, how were the cases working, what was the relationship to other languages. But of course, I didn't know the languages. I really wanted to have a handbook because I knew that Istanbul University, etc. was teaching these languages, but I wasn't given a grammar book because it was believed I was too young, it was unnecessary, and in hindsight, it really was. Sure. So sure. no, I don't know Hittites. You're, okay, okay. I, I, I went through a brief phase of reading a lot about the Hittites, um, and I, which I find a fascinating civilization. And, uh, you know, now that, now that you mention it, so I had read, um, there's Trevor Bryce, I think, had a book on the Hittite society or something like that. And and he says somewhere in it that the Hittite emperors were sort of hardworking, you know, decent rulers who looked after their subjects. And he said, and I quote, not like the series of monsters who sat on the throne of Byzantium. <laughs> right. And that's that struck me. That was what an odd thing to say. And I, I actually wrote to him and said, which series of monsters did he have in mind? Right. Because. I get the impression that Byzantine emperors were, you know, generally hardworking and okay. You know, I mean, they, they're not monsters. If you want monsters, you look at Julio-Claudian emperors and Tacitus and Suetonius or whatever, right? You can also look at the Hittites. I mean, there were so many, uh, you know, fights between brothers, sons yeah, and yeah. fathers, fratricide. 
anyway, he never responded to that. So. Yeah, I didn't read this particular book. I was chiefly reading uh, Turkish Hittitologies, especially Sedat Alp's work, because he also published things were, that were more or less accessible to a general public. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, okay, so, um, so the, your opportunities for sort of accessing uh, Byzantium um, while you were in Turkey, so they were there, maybe a bit limited on the on the linguistic front, and so you had to self-teach in Greek, which is impressive, by the way. And to, to jump from that into Manuel's ecrisis of the tapestry in the Louvre, yeah. that uh, it was a struggle as an undergrad. Oh, I believe it. Yes, it drove me crazy. Yes, that no, I I remember that was a struggle for me. Um, but nevertheless, I mean, I have to say that I have been really impressed by the growth. Um, of Byzantine studies in Turkey and the really, really impressive work coming out um, of a number of uh, you know, Turkish publications and scholars. Um, I, I, this just wasn't the case. I mean, when I was a grad student in the 90s, um, one didn't normally come across you know, Turkish publications or studies by Turkish scholars that were just fundamental to you know, whatever field you were working on, but now that seems to be fairly common. Um, you, so could you just give our listeners a sort of sense of how, I mean, you're obviously a very subjective uh, impression. Um, no one can speak for an entire country or, or a field, but just generally, how has the study of Byzantium in Turkey changed over the last sort of 20 years or so? Okay, I mean, but to add another cautionary note to your, uh, you know, remarks, also I have to say that I haven't witnessed many of these developments firsthand because it happened chiefly in the 90s when I was a child and I was not in the field. Uh, whereas many of the other uh, Turkish Byzantine scholars who are, let's say, in their early or mid careers, uh, they actually witnessed this firsthand. So they would be in a much, much better and uh, position to basically tell about all sure. these. But I know that, I mean, the Byzantine studies in Turkey especially started flowering past the 1990. Uh, before that, in the 20s and 30s, yes, there was studies on Byzantium, but only on art history and archaeology. Because in the early Republic, uh, areas such as Sumerians or Hittites, they were also endorsed by the state because they were looking for basis for the Turkish national identity. And uh, Byzantium never became a candidate, so it wasn't given the equal importance. Uh, so mostly uh, this uh, development of Byzantine studies is not something that the state supported or driven, but something that occurred thanks to the efforts of individual scholars. And uh, in the 50s and 60s, we had, of course, scholars working on it uh, in Istanbul University, which is one of the cheat state universities. Uh, they finally opened the Byzantine chair. In 1955, we hosted the 10th International Byzantine Congress in Turkey. But I would say from what I gather and from all the things and all the people that I'm listening to, it really started sort of coming to the foreground in the 90s when uh, individual scholars tried very hard to, you know, gain public interest, uh, to engage more students for the study of Byzantium. And in places like, let's say, Boazici University and later Koch University, we had actual Byzantine scholars who were teaching. And of course, because they were teaching, more students got interested and they trained these students. They sent them abroad and they came back, they contributed more, so on and so forth. And for example, at some point, I believe uh, Boazici University even had a joint PhD program with Sorbonne. And I know that they think that uh, in the 90s, this was more or less facilitated uh, because the world was becoming more global. So people were more, how to say, open to moving beyond the national history paradigm. Uh, the uh, relationships, the political relationships with Greece were becoming more cordial, whereas previously we had issues, you know, there was the problems over Cyprus, whereas it seems in the 90s this yeah. was sort of starting to die down. And I know that in 1999, 44 years after the International Byzantine Congress, they organized the Byzantine Studies Conference, an international one, and this was considered a very big point uh, turning point for academics because it was only then that many academics actually understood the significance of Byzantium for Turkey. You know that uh, 
First of all, history is universal. Uh, anybody can be studying any culture or civilization. And second, uh, the, the Byzantine heritage is a part of modern-day Turkey because the borders of modern-day Turkey are really the hearts of the Byzantine Empire. So in some other ways, it is very, very relevant to modern-day Turkish Republic. So it is chiefly understood that, especially after that point, more and more academics and students and the general public started getting interested. And around the same time, I believe, RCAC, the Research Center for Anatolian Civilizations, was founded. You know, it also had Byzantine postdocs and visiting Byzantine scholars. And around uh, 2015, Koç University and Boğaziçi University, simultaneously more or less, established centers for Byzantium specifically. Uh, so they started handing out funding to grad students. You know, they started offering courses, uh, specialized programs on epigraphy, uh, on Byzantine Greek. For example, the Boazici University now organizes a Byzantine summer school every year for Greek. And they were working on conferences. They established the Sevgi Gönöl Symposium starting from 2007 onwards. And it takes place, I believe, every three years. Uh, and the proceedings are published. Koch University is also working on other projects like a big photo archive. They are now working on the walls and they are soon, I believe, are going to be launching a website about the walls of Constantinople, interactive map and articles. So I would say after this point, it just became bigger and bigger because also the more developments you have and the more people and the prospective students can have access to Byzantine books, Byzantine classes or Byzantine professors, the more and more they get interested in sure. uh, because, yeah. It is not only for specific or ideological reasons that historians choose their fields, but students also mostly choose whatever is available for them. I mean, back in my own university, we didn't have Byzantine courses, but I had friends who were curious about Byzantium, but they eventually never pursued this path because they never took classes. They never had any professors to whom they could consult, ask opinions, they couldn't learn the languages, so they chose the Ottoman studies because this is what they're exposed to. They took classes, they found interesting words, they were influenced and inspired by their mentors, so on and so forth. Yeah, you know, now that I hear you saying this, um, I'm struck by how similar the situation is becoming in the, in the United States, actually, uh, though the trajectory is the opposite one, because in the humanities here, we're, um, we're losing faculty positions every year um, and across the country. So every time this year around in the fall, I'm contacted by many stu undergraduate students who, who, who want to talk with me about the opportunities for, for Byzantine study in the United States, and I'm noticing every year that there are fewer and fewer programs to which they can apply, and those students have had fewer opportunities to interact, you know, with Byzantinists in their home institutions or learn Greek. I mean, it's becoming fairly difficult uh, even here. Um, and uh, anyway, I mean, I, I would hope that the trajectory in Turkey is the opposite one, that the yeah. opportunities are increasing, right? I and, would say so, certainly. Yeah. I mean, it still needs to increase, so I would say this is only the beginning, but even in the last 10-15 years from my getter and from what I can personally witness, it has changed dramatically. So now there are many programs, many people to consult with, funding opportunities, language classes, publications that are published in English, in Turkey, international work being translated into Turkish. So I would say on the contrary, the opportunities are growing. And I know that many of the established scholars who were very, very pivotal in this change want to keep working more and more and expand this phenomena to other universities, to other cities. So I would say things are looking very hopeful for Byzantine studies in Turkey. That's very good to hear. So so what sort of subfields of Byzantine studies are more strongly established and which ones where do you think there's more room for growth? 
I would say in history, Byzantine art history and archaeology are the top disciplines, which is to some extent is not surprising because all the buildings and the size and the heritage sure. is physically there. So our art history and archaeology is very well established. We have lots of excavations that are taking place, lots of studies of general art history on specific buildings, specific cities. So this is, I would say, perhaps the field that is most vibrant. And many universities actually have specialists in these. History is another, I think, field that has been rather well developed. We have good historians who are specializing on Byzantium, especially as far as the relations of the Byzantines with the Ottomans or with Arabs are concerned. These are topics that are especially popular in Turkey, but of course not limited to. Uh, but I would say that the areas that there is still more growth are areas such as philology, uh, Byzantine literature, Byzantine philosophy, theology, and so on and so forth. Now, uh, classical philology in Turkey is also not a very widespread field. So I'm, we have a few state universities that have very strong classical departments, and they do excellent work on classical Greek and Latin tradition. But they are localized, so it is not like every university in Turkey has a classics department. For example, whereas when I was in the UK, I noticed that it is much more common. Many universities have more or less right. some sort of a classical specialist. And that perhaps has to do with the fact that, you know, classical uh, philology was established in Europe in the 19th century. Uh, whereas ours is a more recent development, like the Byzantine studies, all this big flowerment is chiefly the work of the past 25 years, so it's relatively very young. So I think uh, we need to expand the opportunities for students and specialists to learn Greek. Right. And also for them and historians to learn how to engage uh, with these texts, not only as historical sources, but also as uh, pieces of Byzantine literature, whatever that means. So not only, let's say, reading a history, official documents or letter collections to get information, but also to know how authors work, what are the genre, what are some of the like common cliches found in this type of literature, how to analyze metaphors, imageries, uh, so how to learn, let's say, to work with a literary text, an imperial oration, a work of hagiography, or a history. I think uh, we need to be working more and more on Byzantine literature. Sure, sure. But it is interesting to watch the discipline build itself up, in, in, in Turkey in this case, from different foundations in which it happened in Western Europe. I mean, in Western Europe, the, for a long time, people were studying Byzantine materials, not as Byzantinists, but the field gradually emerged largely out of uh, classical philology and theology. I mean, those those were the reasons why someone would, you know, be interested in Byzantium is to, for the texts, uh, you know, German philology always needed more Greek texts to edit, <laughs> right? And, uh, and for theological reasons, obviously, all the debates, uh, the religious debates in Europe, and not through archaeology, you know, or, you know, because those materials weren't available. And it's interesting to see in Turkey, the field sort of constitute itself um, f first through the study of the material remains that are there. Um, and in fact, uh, all of the recent volumes that are coming out about, um, especially Anatolian archaeology and cities and urban development and all of that, uh, there's a lot of good work coming out of Turkey about these sorts of things. So it's a different view of Byzantium yeah. that's, that's emerging simply through the way the subdisciplines emerge at different times. Anyway, you know, I think that's uh, it's interesting to see to see how it'll happen. Maybe they can get some of those Hittite experts to switch over to visit the Greek. Uh -huh, I don't know. Let's try. <laughs> yeah. um, so I also wanted to ask you about sort of general perceptions of Byzantium in Turkey these days and obviously different parts of, you know, Turkish Turkish life will have different views of Byzantium. Um, you know, ranging from, you know, perceptions in national history or official ideology to schools to, to popular culture, movies, newspapers and academia and so on. I'm sure there's just a very wide range um, of, of views. Um, just to give you an example, I mean, a, a comparable example, like in Greece, um, you know, Byzantium has been fitted into the national story and is considered an essential part of the Greek national story, though it, it has a kind of awkward fit there. It was never a very good 
it wasn't a happy marriage, you know, kind of squeezing it in between the classics and modern Greece. And there's still this kind of ambivalence about it. But it's nevertheless considered something sort of fundamental for national history. But if you actually become a Byzantinist in Greece, there's a good chance that people will assume that you're either like some really right-wing guy or something or closely associated with the church. Like, like that's who you have to be. Uh, it, you know, why else would you be really interested in Byzantium? Um, and that's just a pe- peculiar feature of, you know, the, the place of the field in Greece. And I'm, it's different in every other country. Uh, so I was just kind of wondering what, you know, where does Byzantium fit into the sort of Turkish perce- perceptions? I mean, there are, I would say, multiple perceptions operating at the same time on Byzantium. First of all, let's start with, I don't know, national history. Uh, Byzantium, as far as I know, is not a part of the Turkish historical narrative. So in high school, in primary school, elementary school, Byzantium is not really studied. It's not a part of the curriculum. At least I wasn't taught it, and I know that the previous generations were not. There are only a few passing sentences about, oh yes, there was the Byzantine Empire, the Seljuks came, they conquered it, you know, and uh, during the Ottoman civil wars, uh, the Byzantine emperors and rulers were trying to uh, make the princes fight amongst each other and divide the Ottoman Empire, and then you speak about the conquest of Constantinople, so on and so forth. But Byzantium itself is not an entity that is studied much in textbooks. And uh, ironically enough, so as a young student, when I was reading about the Byzantine emperors who were inciting one Ottoman prince against the other, I had no idea who this was, so I was just reading through it. And later on, I realized, of course, the chief actor is Manuel II, so he was actually there. (laughs) unnamed but present. Uh, So I would say, because it is not really studied in school, etc., general public is not really well aware of Byzantium. Uh, Not because they sometimes consciously choose to, uh, you know, get rid of it, but simply because they're ignorant. They have never been exposed to Whereas they have some passing knowledge of, let's say, Ottoman history, uh, a little bit of uh, about European history. They have notions about this, but not so much about Byzantium. And uh, I know that uh, earlier on in Turkish movie uh, movies, there were lots of like uh, cliche characters about Byzantine emperors and Byzantines and generals. So these Turkish movies were about the Turkish heroes, the Ottomans and the yeah. Seljuks, usually handsome man with good morals and a nice smile. And they would fight against the Byzantines, you know, the, the Byzantines, they would save their people. They would sometimes rescue a Byzantine princess who would fall in love with this hero son and so forth so when i occasionally come across such movies in tv channels uh, they they are stereotypes you know Uh, they first of all dress in very interesting fashions sometimes even like leopard skins and stuff like that (laughs) they drink a lot they are the quintessential bad guys they have this evil laugh etc so i know that in early on in the movies they were represented the byzantines in a, a sort of very very antagonistic fashion and even today when they're i don't know uh, initiating new tv series there was one for example that was very short-lived about mehmet the conqueror to some extent i would say the same stereotype is continuing because again again of course all the byzantines were evil they were drinking they were making plans you know they were loose women walking around in the palace so this is sometimes how the media and the movie industry portrays the byzantines yeah, I, it's it's yeah. possible that if the West made movies about Byzantium, it wouldn't be any different. <laughs> I yeah, mean, I suspect so. Yeah. 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 There was um. I came across. I don't know exactly how, know how to describe this, but I came across what appeared to be some sort of slapstick comedy sitcom about Byzantium that involved some Amazonian women who had migrated from. Brazil or something to the Byzantine Empire, but it was a Turkish show. Have you ever seen this? Uh, is it called Kahpe Byzans? Do you know the name? Uh, how would that translate? It's like decadence Byzantium, maybe. It could be, yeah. Um, I'm not sure. I know that there are two movies about Byzantium that were like parodies and satires. 
uh, but I didn't watch them okay. because they came out when I was young and after that I wasn't particularly interested. But I know that the academic community criticized them a lot because even though they were just having fun, mocking, they sort of advocated this kind of understanding of Byzantium, bad, decadent, luxurious, wanton, and so it became an established cliché. Right. But of course, that doesn't mean that everyone in Turkey is thinking like that, even from the general you know, public who are interested in history. But I would say these conflicting ideas are very much in existence together. And uh, many scholars now also appear on TV shows, debate programs, so on and so forth. And they try and explain that why such a perception of Byzantium is wrong. And so I would say more and more people are now gaining an understanding of what Byzantium was, uh, actually was. Not this sort of like comedy uh, characterizations found in movies, but it's different. Yeah, yeah. Um... Nevertheless, that's still an extraordinary investment uh, in terms of, uh, you know, popular entertainments and media in Byzantium. Like uh, in the West, there's really not much attention paid to it at all, good or bad. Right. Um, so that indicates that it's considered, you know, relevant to, you know, uh, the heroic ballads of, you know, the Turkish tradition or to the, you know, national story or so on. Yeah, um, of course, because yeah. this is against whom the heroes are fighting, the Seljuks and the Ottomans. They are, yes. Yeah. Um, I remember a couple of years ago here, um, there was a TV show about Attila. And, um, you know, Attila interacted, for lack of a better word, with, with both the Western and the Eastern <laughs> Roman courts, right, in the, in the 5th century. And in this show, this is only just a couple of years ago, the Western Roman court in Rome was depicted in traditional Roman uh, fashion as if it were in the age of Caesar and Cicero. But the Eastern Roman court was depicted like an Oriental, you know, fantasy with, um, you know, dark rooms and incense and these, uh, you know, black robed figures in the background and nuns and whatever. And even though, you know, these emperors are like cousins or something. And at the same time, it was just really weird. But anyway, we, we have a long way to go in any country in, in realistic yeah. representations of Byzantium. Yeah. I agree, but it's going there. Yeah. We are so, going to reach that point someday. So another factor that, that's relevant would be, of course, economic growth in Turkey. Um, and this enables more students to you know, study a wider range of topics or to go abroad. I mean, if you send a thousand students abroad to study anything in the humanities or history just by random chance some of them will be intrigued by I don't know, Manuel Pelologos yeah. right and <laughs> yes you know, not for any kind of structural or ideological reason just because you know people's interests sort of naturally vary and 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 you get um, um, they get drawn to Byzantine material just even for the same reasons that anybody anywhere else would yeah, exactly. And I think in terms of economic growth, uh, one of the things that contributed to the development in Byzantine studies in Turkey is perhaps also the establishment of several private universities. Uh, they were established and in turn they set up these Byzantine centers so people actually supported our scholars who were trying to revive the Byzantine studies and funded them. So you're right, now we have these centers which can organize conferences, you know, have lectures, publish books and also to financially support prospective students. So this in itself is of course very important. Yeah, how do how do private universities work exactly in Turkey? So are they, they're nonprofit, uh, they're basically yeah. nonprofits set up for uh, philanthropic uh, purposes or how, how exactly they work, do, do you know? I mean, perhaps I'm not the really right person to speak about this because I don't know have I don't have any administrative experience, but from what I gather, more or less, this is the situation. So it is non-profits and uh, big industrial families or like very wealthy individuals set up these universities, uh, pay for the buildings and everything. And once it is established uh, and when you have the students who also pay for their tuition, it is more or less like uh, self-running. 
Okay. And of course, periodically yeah. I get they are supplemented by funds from the family or the individual who founded this university, but uh, none of them, uh, for example, get only students who pay. They also give a large number of scholarships, sometimes even more than 50% of a private university can be uh, students who are fully funded. So this is the idea I get. Okay, so very much like the American model of the private yeah. endow endowed university. Okay, yeah, yeah. Um, so um, another factor that I think bears some discussion is um, the fact that so Turkey would now be the largest predominantly Muslim country that's involved in Byzantine studies internationally. Um, I think it's probably fair to say. And at the same time, um, Byzantine studies, in, especially in Europe, have traditionally had you know, a very strong sort of Christian bias in, in how it's written and um, also with the kinds of expertise that scholars bring to it. Um, they either have a backgrounds in theology or New Testament studies and, you know, the liturgy or, you know, Christian art and, and devotion. Um, and, you know, it's, it's fair to say that a great deal of the literature has a Christian, if not specifically Orthodox bias. So um, I find it very interesting um, to talk with um, Turkish or any other scholars from a Muslim background as to you know whether this poses any particular kinds of either challenges or opportunities that is 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 do you see things about the field that you think should be could be done differently or can be improved um, or do you see something in Byzantium that you know Western scholars or scholars coming from more Christian background don't necessarily see that easily um, I mean just very generally I'm asking if there if you have any perceptions along those lines I mean, the one thing I think we should emphasize is that uh, whether you are a Christian or a Muslim scholar, whether you come from Europe, United States or Turkey, it doesn't or maybe shouldn't really impact the reasons and the manner in which you study Byzantium. So abroad, I sometimes encounter this assumption that if a Turkish scholar identifies himself or herself as a Muslim, then it is a big shock that they should be studying Byzantine studies at all because it's a Christian empire. But, I mean, uh, Muslims can also study Byzantium because history is universal. You don't only have to study cultures and civilizations that share your religion, exact ethnicity. Otherwise, uh, global history would be a very, very different thing. Everybody would just study uh, whatever religion they believe in, exactly. only specifically to their national countries. This is not like that. So uh, there are sometimes assumptions that if you're a Turkish Byzantinist, probably you don't identify yourself as a Muslim, you're an atheist, so on and so forth. But I would like people to know that there are many people who think themselves as Muslims and as, you know, normal scholars who are, you know, studying history as a universal product of humanity. They are interested in this as scholars and they have no problems whatsoever studying a Christian empire because they think this is normal. I mean, if we really need to have a strong justification, it is a part of now Turkish national heritage. Previously, maybe this wasn't understood so much, but now more and more awareness is growing about this topic because if you tour Anatolia, if you take a stroll in Istanbul's old city parts, all you see are Byzantine monuments. So they even wonder who lived there before, you know, the Turkish Republic and the Ottoman Empire. So I think that this is actually a very natural thing. And when you emphasize too much, oh, you're a Muslim, you're a Turk, how come you study Byzantium? I sometimes feel like, is it also accentuating a bit the otherness? Because I understand that perhaps some 30 years ago, okay, the ratio of the Turkish Byzantinists is much smaller. But now, uh, I mean, it is almost 2020 and things have changed a lot. As you say, there are lots of Turkish scholars out there, Turkish publications. So uh, I don't think that we need to explain ourselves and justify our notions of choosing Byzantium. Some people indeed uh, choose to uh, become Byzantinists because they say, ah, in uh, high school I wasn't taught about Byzantine history, I got curious. I saw that Byzantium was part of the Turkish national heritage. But some people like me choose Byzantium for the same reasons that they would choose to specialize on medieval England or medieval China. They simply find it of scholarly interest. Yeah, I think it's very important that you emphasize these points. I, 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 agree, I agree entirely, uh, especially this whole idea of, 
you know, scholarly choices through affinity, uh, right? In other words, ah, you're Orthodox, so that's why you work on Byzantium, or, or you know, that each each group should work on its own, you know, territory or something like that. I and mean, that is, it's first of all, it's not true. It doesn't actually describe what people are doing. For one thing, in the West, there's been a long tradition of Marxist interest in Byzantium. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, I, and, and sometimes I actually do get these kinds of questions in the sense like, well, you know, what you're saying right now sounds rather sort of left wing. Why are you working on Byzantium if you have those kinds of ideas? <laughs> like what? I just, I, it's hard to understand how you get from point A to point B. But have you actually gotten questions like, well, I, you know, you, you, you come from a Muslim country. Why are you working on Byzantium as opposed to, I don't know, whatever is more proper to you or something? Do you, do you get those kinds of questions? I do. And I still get them sometimes, not even when I first started my studies, but even three years after my PhD, not always and not by everybody, but I still do encounter these questions and people sometimes seem to be expecting me to sort of attempt to justify this choice. Uh, whereas first, as I said, history is universal. You know, you can pick on any identity, any culture, civilization you may wish to because of some unknown reason. You just feel interested in that. And also to me now, perhaps because I saw heavens, you know, uh, witnessed the first hand the development of Byzantine studies and how uh, the lack of interest in Byzantium previously, to me nowadays, it seems very natural that a Turkish scholar could be drawn to Byzantium because uh, the, you know, territory of the modern day Turkish Republic covers the heart of Byzantium. Yeah. So I say, oh, this is so natural. Now I understand that uh, before the 19th, this is not the case. And there is a lack of interest in Byzantium in Turkey. Some people associated with a nationalistic Greek history and try to stay away from it. And I get that. But to me, at least, as somebody who sort of grew outside these developments and came to the field way after these had been established, I now think that perhaps this question is no longer that relevant. I mean, nobody is questioning a Bulgarian or an Egyptian or an Italian with the same fervor. Yeah, I, I think that's, uh, that fields, in, you know, benefit um, from having, you know, as many people from as many different backgrounds working in them um, as possible. And, and I think that, I, and I hope that Byzantium will become increasingly appealing um, to, you know, people all around the world and that they will bring different perspectives to the field you know, in a certain sense, you know, Byzantine studies has been dominated by scholars from a very small number of countries who sort of set the agenda and set the terms of, you know, how we understand it. Um, and, you know, some of those countries, you know, and it generally goes with, you know, which ones had the resources to establish universities and libraries and things like this. But also, especially in the sort of imperial Western countries, that collected the histories of other parts of the world, right? And, yeah. You know, especially in the 19th century. And there's this kind of idea that, you know, a proper scholar has this kind of, you know, the, the Western imperial uh, perspective. That's a, the true scholar if you're like, you know, I don't know, Paris or Oxford or something like that. But if you're from one of the other countries, <laughs> like even Greece and presumably Turkey and so on, you must be working through some kind of issue, right? Yeah. Right. That that you're not you're not drawn to a particular field for intellectual reasons or aesthetic reasons or personal reasons or whatever. But there's some kind of of national narrative that's driving you to do it, and there's some sort of formula. That if you tell someone, you know, they'll 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 understand it. And and I've I've seen this as even applied to to Greeks and so on. Ah, well, they're just working through their Greek issues when they work on Byzantium. <laughs> Well, no, you know, but there's these problems in these texts that are far more interesting than, you know, modern Greek issues. I mean, anyway, I mean, the modern countries have existed for a century, maybe two centuries. But Byzantium existed for 1100, cent uh, 11 centuries or, or, or more, depending. And and its issues are just valid, uh, you know, just in their own sake. So um, and, and, and this is in part why I wanted to talk with you about this, because you just seem to be you know, past any point of having that kind of, um, you know, either ideological motivation or anything like that. You're just, you know, you um, attracted to Byzantium for the same reasons as anyone else might be. 
Um, yeah, but I ha again have to emphasize, I mean, this is a personal thing. And, you know, if I were, let's say, 10 or 15 years older, I would have probably encountered more resistance to Byzantium as a scholar. Uh, there would be no scholars around to consult with, or fewer at least. Yeah, there yeah. would be no conferences. Uh, when I decided to become a Byzantinist, Byzantine studies in Turkey were already flourishing. And there was a growing interest, so I never had to really struggle, you know, find finding, funding, try to justify my choices to people. I never really experienced these struggles, so maybe this also influenced my outlook on the topic. That's that's great to hear. I mean, that um, I, and I hope that that um, that's the case in more and more countries as we move forward, uh, because as I said earlier, I'm I'm not entirely optimistic about how the funding situation for our field is going to look in, in the Western European countries for very much longer. And so it's good to actually have scholars come in from other countries. It's just really necessary. Anyway, um, so I wanted to talk to you also about the, the way in which Byzantium is sometimes configured as Greek um, and, and whether this is an issue. And um, so, so one of these ironies in history that I, that I point out to people sometimes is that, that modern Greece and the modern Turkish Republic define their national independence in relation to each other. <laughs> and I think it's, it's the only case that I know in history, right, where, where that's happened. I mean, there could be others, but I, I just couldn't think of any. Um, so, the, the, you know, the Greeks have the revolution of uh, the 1820s, and the uh, modern Turkey has the, the, um, the creation of the modern Turkish state in, in a century later, uh, defending against a Greek uh, attempt to take over, you know, Western Asia Minor. Um, so... Given how Byzantium is, is so often identified with Greece or with Greek things, and, and by extension, that's linked sometimes to you know, the modern uh, Greek you know, state. Um, so I, I wonder if those kinds of issues have come up in your experience of Byzantium at all. Uh, not me personally, because as I told you, I came to the field much later and more or less these issues were solved. But I know that in previous decades, yes, sometimes Byzantium was overlooked by academics because it was predominantly perceived as a Greek history. So it was like, let Greek scholars work on Byzantium and let the Turks work on the Ottoman Empire. I didn't encounter this first stand because, as I told you, it was already established as a field. But I know that the earlier generation of scholars had these kind of attitudes. And yeah, they said this is a Greek empire, you know, it's not part of the Turkish history, really, so on and so forth. But uh, now, of course, the world is becoming more global, uh, stances are changing. And I think politically, Greece and Turkey are now also uh, having a much more cordial relationship than in the past. And uh, more and more people are now drawn to history for scholarly purposes. So they understand that Byzantium is not just Greek history history, but it is part of the Turkish heritage, and it is also a universal empire that, you know, uh, had a global impact, because as you said, it lasted for more than 1,000 years. At least initially, it had huge territories, interacted with different cultures. So in order to really understand many developments that took place globally, you need to understand Byzantium. So I think that now more people are aware of it, and they ascribe less importance to the Greekness. Yeah, and as a matter of principle, we should say that, that history should not be regarded as the possession um, of any modern yeah, country. Yeah, I agree. Right, and, and not just, I mean, obviously, ancient and medieval history should absolutely not be deemed the property of any, of any modern state or modern ideology, but should be open to everybody. Um, and, but I, I would make the same case for you know, modern history, too. We, we, we simply can't have this siloed, um, state where everybody just kind of works on their own national history, and and uh, unfortunately, that's that's still the case in, in 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 many places, including in Western medieval studies, which, as a field, it seems to be a sort of conglomeration of siloed national narratives. You know, we study France, we study England, we study Italy, and and, and so forth. Um, and and I hope that Byzantium is harder to sort of um, pigeonhole in that way, and and to be made. And, and, you know, to, to some degree, there are, there are Greek things about, about Byzantium, but there are also other things, too. And yeah, as you know, I've, I've 
tried to highlight the Roman aspect of it, um, which I think was, you know, just as important. And crucially for this question, unrelated to any modern national narrative. That is, no one today is going to claim Byzantium on the basis of its Roman identity. Um, and I think that that potentially might, you know, make it uh, easier to be studied in other places and not linked to some particular modern narrative. Anyway, I, I don't know if that's going to, um, you know, help with any kind of framework developing in Turkey, um, just to see it as Roman rather than Greek as a, as a way of accessing it. It might and it might not. I mean, first of all, yes, now there is a growing interest and understanding about Byzantium also in the general public, but there are still people who are just purely ignorant of it. You know, they don't know whether it's Greek or Roman. They have no idea what Byzantium is, just something that was around Istanbul and Anatolia at some point. Uh, but, uh, the, you know, this growing interest in the Romanness of Byzantium, much, I think, might make it even more interesting because they get to see how identity can be renegotiated. It might also make Byzantium more interesting for people who are interested in the Roman Empire, per se. Right. If they perceive Byzantium more as a direct continuation of Roman history, this might Byzantine studies are a more intriguing field for them. Okay, well, let's see how that plays out. Um, I think that um, I was recently informed. And so one of my books is being translated into Turkish, but I can't remember which one now. Um, but anyway, I'll definitely let you know when I uh, when that seems to be gaining momentum. And uh, um, all right. Uh, so I have a, a closing question um, that I ask all of my guests. Um, and that is if you could uh, recommend two books uh, just for our listeners to read, not necessarily about Byzantium, anything that you've read that you think is great. Okay, first is going to be a scholarly publication. It is The Categories of Medieval Culture by Aaron Gurevich. It's a relatively oldish book, but I find it very thought-provoking and interesting. And the second is going to be a fun read. It's called 24 Hours in Ancient Egypt. They also have its uh, counterpart in 24 Hours in Ancient Rome, in Ancient uh, Greece, and I believe one on China is also going to come out. Uh, I mean, it is not a scholarly publication, but it is a fun read. So uh, basically each book covers 24 hours in one of these places and it is told by the point of view from a different person every time. So the first hour, let's say, is told by a Greek general, the second by a Greek housewife, the third by somebody who's in the Senate, and so on and so forth. And you get to see a panorama of the society, the city, and also how these lives interact. And I find it a very, very entertaining thing to read. Is this written in a novelistic format, like with dialogue? It is, and... it is. Yes, there, it is a novelistic format, but of course it has uh, historical information that is embedded in it. So you get to learn, let's say, how the ancient Greek economy works, how are the messengers uh, commuting between cities, what is it like to be a woman in ancient Egypt. But it is like a novel, so I find it very pleasurable to read. And you also get to see the own thoughts and emotions of each individual. So how are they feeling or what are they thinking? Now, we don't have a book like that uh, about Byzantium. Uh, are you interested in yeah, writing it? Yeah, I one? was just thinking about that, yeah. Are you interested in one. writing it? Yes. <laughs> okay, well, uh, who publishes these books? Oh, I don't know the publisher, no, I'm okay. afraid. I'll, I'll look them up. And I know that the ones on Egypt and China are authored by separate people, and the same author wrote the one on Greece and Rome. Okay, I'll look them up. Thank you. And could you just say a few words about your your own forthcoming book? Um, just looking forward, I hope we can discuss it again when it comes out, uh, whenever that is. But just could you tell our listeners what to expect? Okay, I think it is supposed to come towards the end of 2020 with Cambridge University Press. And it is a new biography of Manuel II. And uh, unlike John Barker's book on Manuel, uh, it is not only about politics, but it is chiefly a literary and a personal biography. So I have for the first time uh, worked on Manuel's total corpus of literary, philosophical, theological work. So I discussed the issues of his self-representation, the political 
political messages he embedded into his writings. I trace some uh, basically uh, developments in his philosophical and theological outlook. I look at some aspects of his literary style and also his personal life, his pastimes, relationships with his family, his friends, his travels. And also I try to add some new insights into his governance and rulership. Right. Well, uh, so that's... um the end of 2020 so it's probably be around it'll be published by the time i get to that period uh, in the history i'm writing yeah you know, I'm, I'm i'm trying to write a new history of byzantium okay but that'll be so and a book like this will absolutely be um necessary uh, when i reach that that period and but but I, I think it'll be out by the time i do that i'm not going to reach the, i hope the, so really because yes i've been working on it for quite some time now right. and i'm getting really impatient well I, yes yeah i know what you mean it'll be so long <laughs> you know by the time that book comes out you will have moved on to something else and you know you're oh that thing is still around yeah 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 anyway um <laughs> all right well no i very much look forward to it and Thanks. thank you Siren, for speaking with me again it was a great pleasure and uh, let's do it again when the book comes out Okay, thank you for the invitation and it was a real pleasure talking to you. All right, bye-bye.